traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. In the 1950s and 1960s, movie and television westerns were as abundant as superhero films and TV shows are today, and the Twilight Zone itself had its fair share of visits to the Old West. So far back in season one we had Mr. Denton on Doomsday, the story of the alcoholic Mr. Denton being given a chance at redemption from the Twilight Zone. In execution, the villainous Joe Caswell was brought from the Old West to the future and brought death with him. In dust, a Mexican man sits in a jail cell waiting to be hung for causing the death of a young girl. And in the grave, an all-star Western cast delivers a story of revenge from beyond the grave. So if we look at these stories, it seems that the Twilight Zone so far has used the Western to deliver some of its grittiest tales. Alcoholism, revenge, tragedy, forgiveness. The Twilight Zone Westerns weren't light-hearted. Until now. Perhaps playing on the audience's knowledge of the Twilight Zone's past, or maybe just Western iconography in general, the opening of tonight's episode sees a couple of cowboys stood looking down the centre of a typical western town. But in a nice moment of subverting expectations, instead of a rider coming in on a horse, we get our star, Rance McGrew, driving in a car. Well, it's about time. You're an hour and 15 minutes late, Ranch. Side, 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 don't start that with me. You know how emotional scenes upset me before we shoot. Come on. Well, don't get upset, Ranch. We'll try to get this What do you say we get started? Okay, baby? This is scene 71. You got your script there? Read it to me. Come on, Tommy. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, sorry. It's the interior saloon, cover shot of three bad men at bar. Rance McGrew enters, he walks to bar, he glances sideways, left and right. Left and right, he glances left and right. What do you think my head is on, a swivel? Listen, Cy, when a cowboy walks into a bar, he walks straight to the other end of the room. Then he takes his drink and he looks at that. Then he looks straight ahead. Doesn't look left and right. All right, Rance, we'll shoot it your way, any way you want. So as we see, tonight's star isn't a western tough guy, but to use Rod Sailing's phrase, a phony baloney cowboy. So let's see how this particular shoot plays out when we have a showdown with Rance McGrew. Some 100 odd years ago, a motley collection of tough mustaches galloped across the west and left behind a raft of legends and leisure domains. And it seems a reasonable conjecture that if there are any television sets up in cowboy heaven, and any one of these rough and woolly nail eaters could see with what careless abandon their names and exploits are being bandied about, they're very likely turning over in their graves, or worse, getting out of them. 
which gives you a clue as to the proceedings that'll begin in just a moment, when one Mr. Rance McGrew, a 3,000 buck a week phony baloney, discovers that this week's current edition of Make Believe is being shot on location, and that location is the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on February 2nd, 1962, written by Rod Serling and based on an idea by Frederick Lewis Fox and directed by Christian Nyby. Okay, before we talk about the director and so on, I just have to go straight on to the opening narration because has Rod Serling ever looked so cool? Probably, but this is right up there with the best of them. Straight up, iconic cool. The saloon doors open and there he is, impeccably dressed, leaning against Lance McGrew's car with a cigarette in his hand. And he effortlessly delivers this really wordy and quick opener narration. It's like verbal gymnastics to the point that if you don't listen hard enough to it, then you miss what he's actually saying. So whatever we might think of the episode, this is right up there for me visually as one of the great Rod Sailing introductions. So our director is Christian Nyby, who directed two Twilight Zones in total, this and Cavender is coming. His two and a half decade career as a director began in 1951, and apart from the odd single episode, he would tend to stick around on shows for a while. For example, he directed 62 episodes of a show called It's a Great Life, 13 episodes of Perry Mason, 26 episodes of Bonanza, and they're just a few examples. But he actually started out as an editor. His first directing credit came in 1951 and is probably his most high-profile directing credit. And that was the film The Thing From Another World, which was an adaption of the short story Who Goes There, which of course also spawned the John Carpenter film The Thing. Now there is some discussion as to whether he truly directed The Thing From Another World or not, because it was produced by the legendary Howard Hawks, and there is talk that Hawks was there every day on set, and that it was him who was really in control. So it's kind of similar to the rumours surrounding Toby Hooper on the film Poltergeist, with, with some claiming that it was actually the producer Steven Spielberg who directed it. As far as the thing from another world goes, I don't know enough about that to make that call, but looking down his list of credits, I do think it's his most high-profile gig. So the episode itself is written by Rod Serling, but it's based on an idea by Frederick Fox. And Fox was a television writer who, at this point, had a good few television westerns under his belt, with shows like Johnny Ringo and Black Saddle, now he only has 29 credits to his name and he seems to have all but stopped writing by 1969. But there is one more Twilight Zone credit to his name in that his short story became the basis for the later episode Hocus Pocus and Frisbee. Now in the Twilight Zone companion there is a quote from Sailing about how Fox's idea came to his typewriter. He said... Fred Fox had an interesting notion which was quite serious about a modern-day cowpoke, not a television star, who found himself living in the past. It had no sense of humour in it. 
It was a straightforward piece, but it struck me it would be a terribly interesting concept to have a guy who plays the role of a Hollywood cowboy suddenly thrust into the maelstrom of reality in which he has to do all of these acts of prowess against real people. And it just occurred to me, my God, what would happen if the Rance McGrews of our time had to face this? I used to think this about John Wayne all the time, who had fought most of our major wars. In truth, of course, they were fought on the backlot of Warner Brothers, in which the most deadly jeopardy would be to get hit by a flying starlet. And I always wondered what Wayne's reaction would be if he ever had to lift up an M1 and go through a bloody foxhole on attack sometime. But this is the element of humour that I was striving to get. Now at this time, Rod Serling was kind of reeling a little from an exchange with Ray Bradbury, in which Bradbury accused him of plagiarism. And having written this episode, Martin Grams Jr. documents in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that he didn't want that accusation to come up again with this story, and he wrote to Frederick Fox to kind of smooth that over, and he wrote, A few days after its completion, a little persistent gnawing bug crawled into my consciousness, and I finally remembered someone telling me a story at a strike meeting last spring. I don't know if it was your story that pushed this one out of me, or the germ of it made its writing possible, but I do know that in some 15 years of writing, I have never knowingly copped someone else's material. I've asked Buck Houghton, our producer, to contact Jay Richards to arrange a price for your outline, and a credit of some sort which will satisfy you. So that's the mission of this episode, to consider what the actual cowboys from the Old West would think of their screen counterparts, and vice versa, how would their screen counterparts react in the reality of that situation, which I think is a great idea with a lot of potential, but does Rance McGrew live up to it? Or we'll find out. For the first 11 minutes of the episode, effectively half of it, we're shown this world that Rance McGrew inhabits, with no hint at any Twilight Zone intervention at all. He's a TV star, but also a prima donna, the personification of all of those celebrities you hear about who begin to believe their own hype and become a nightmare to work with. Their demands are high and the amount of work they want to actually put in, low, and nobody likes to work with them. Guess you boys know I'm the marshal. We heard tell. We heard tell. I guess you know that I know that Jesse James is on his way here looking for me. I know that too. Likewise. For something else I know that you don't know, that you don't know that I know that you know Jesse James. You just tell him I'm going to be here waiting for him. I'll be right here waiting. Now, we hear the horse ride up. He stops. He dismounts and he appears on the horse. Figured I'd bluffed you. Here, ready, ain't he? Marshal! Marshal, please, no killing in here, Marshal. Oh, I ain't aiming to kill him. Just going to maim him a little bit. Just gonna pick off his pinky. Jesse ain't gonna take kindly to that. No. So having made his way into the saloon in this scene, Rance McGrew is trying to appear macho 
and he breaks a bottle of whiskey on the bar before taking a swig, which is completely ridiculous, but that's the point. Even in the early 60s, it appears that movie machismo was ridiculous enough that a writer like Rod Serling could pick up on things like that and poke fun at it. But the whiskey itself is a little pointer towards continuity between Twilight Zone episodes. Steve Rubin in the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia writes that this brand, Golden Delight Whiskey, is the brand that falls out of jazz trumpeter Joey Crown's jacket in the episode, A Passage for Trumpet. And Steve Rubin writes, like almost every other product ever featured in the Twilight Zone, this was a fake brand, not to be confused with anything that was actually being advertised on the show. Perhaps unintentionally, it also maintained the illusion of the show, that this was not the real world. If the show was produced today, of course, there would be product placement everywhere. So as well as appearing here in Rance McGrew, it's also Jerry Etherson, played by Cliff Robertson's drink of choice in The Dummy, and also William Feathersmith in Of Late I Think of Cliffordville, and we'll also see it in the self-improvement of Salvador Ross. So clearly we are in comedy territory here, which, as history has shown us, is sometimes problematic for the Twilight Zone. But I actually think for this first 11 minutes, it's probably the best example of Twilight Zone comedy that we've had so far. And I'm actually genuinely amused by the goings-on here. It started with that great reveal at the beginning, when Rance's car comes into town, and then it carries on throughout as we see him on set, his little foibles, the, his demands, that kind of thing. And this is due to Rod Serling writing some genuinely funny scenes, but also the great delivery by them of our leading man, Larry Blyden. And there's also that great interplay between him and the actor playing the director, Robert Cornthwaite. Now Robert Cornthwaite had previously worked with Christian Nyby, on the thing from another world. And Martin Grams Jr. documents a quote from him in Unlocking the Door to a television classic. He says, while we were making this sequence, I stumbled onto something about the relations between actors and extras that I had never known before. And I had been in pictures for more than 11 years. Chris Nyby, who was directing, casually mentioned that it would be perfectly normal for me playing the director to put a hand on the shoulder of the extra girl who played the script clerk when I went over to check a line of dialogue. After three years in Hollywood, I still didn't get his drift. Perfectly normal, sure, I thought, but why make such a point of it? And then I learned that whenever a principal in a scene makes physical contact with an extra in a shot, that extra gets extra. Chris, who is one of the really nice guys in the business, was ensuring this extra girl an adjustment on her paycheck. So that was Robert Cornthwaite who played the director, but our leading man who plays Rance McGrew is Larry Blyden, and we've met him before in A Nice Place to Visit. And I have absolutely no recollection of what I said about him then, so as way of little recap, I'm going to turn again to Steve Rubin's Twilight Zone Encyclopedia because it wasn't released yet when I did the episode on A Nice Place to Visit. Now, I don't normally read Steve's entries in full, but I'll just do it on this one occasion. He says, Award-winning stage television and film actor, 
who portrays Henry Francis' Rocky Valentine in A Nice Place to Visit, and the title character, a cowboy actor in Showdown with Rance McGrew. Although he starred or co-starred in a number of early television shows, Blyden made a far bigger splash as a musical and dramatic performer on Broadway, receiving Tony nominations for Flower Drum Song in 1959 and Absurd Person Singular in 1975. He won the Tony for Best Supporting Actor for playing the part of Hysterium in the 1972 revival of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. He made his television debut in the Never Hit a Pigeon episode of the Silver Theatre in 1950, and he made his feature debut as Kenneth in The Bachelor Party in 1957. A native of Houston, Texas, Blyden was an avid collector of antiques. It was on one of his forays into Morocco on June 6, 1975, that Blyden was attacked and tragically killed by bandits who stole his car and valuables. Now, Blyden had this really great kind of presence, which I think is evident in both of his Twilight Zones, but it also made him ideal for television game shows. And before his tragic death, he had just begun work on a new game show called The Show-Offs, where he was going to be the host. Places, please. It's curtain time for the show-offs. Elaine Joyce. Ron Masak. Linda K. Henning. And the host of Show Off, Larry Blyden. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I understand that you appreciate the fact that I was able to get out here. We can only hope that you're still doing that at the end of the show. I do really like Larry Blyde, and I think he's actually great in this, whatever we end up thinking of the episode. He has real comic time, and, and this persona he has reminds me of what people like Bruce Campbell would be doing years later, you know, all swagger and machismo with not much to actually back it up. So he's really quite willing to poke fun at himself. I think maybe if there's one fault, it's that it's hard to imagine how this guy has become such a big star or, or so indispensable as a star because the Rance McGrew character himself doesn't seem that great within the fiction that they're creating here. But that's probably looking at it a bit too deeply because the point here is to show the difference between the movie tough guys or the television tough guys the phony baloney ones, and the actual tough guys from the Old West. And we begin to examine that after a disagreement on set, where an actor who's playing the part of Jesse James disagrees with how he's to be portrayed. And that's where the Twilight Zone magic starts to come into play. When Rance is transported back in time and comes face to face with the real Jesse James. I'd be looking for the marshal, a fella named McGrew, Rance McGrew. That away. You wouldn't be him, huh?
Where, where's the fellow loan me this vest? Marshal, I think maybe you and me better have a little talk. Maybe a long talk, maybe a short talk, but a talk. You're supposed to be tough. You don't look so tough to me. You know what you look like? Well, I haven't been too well lately. You look kind of like a marshmallow. Don't that rile you none? <gasps> so here we have Jesse James played by three-time Twilight Zone player, Art Johnson, who had previously been in Static and an uncredited role as a fireman in Long Distance Call. Now, Arch Johnson had done his fair share of westerns. I don't think he was a western star per se that I know of, but such was that time that westerns were so much in abundance that a big guy like him would be ideal casting for a heavy. And I think that's what they've went for here because this first shot of him coming in plays on the height of Johnston against Blyden. So it is quite striking and immediately creates the impression that something is different and perhaps that he's more formidable than the actor who's playing Jesse James in this fictional show. Did you ever hit a man in anger or get hit in anger yourself? Tell me true, Marshal. Did you ever ride a horse? On, on occasion. So you don't shoot, you don't ride, and you don't fight. You just strut around wearing a phony badge, going through the motions of killing off fellas like me. Now, I wouldn't say that. Now, last, last year, we had one script in which one of the Dalton boys went free. He told me about it. He also told me how you captured him. You jumped 800 feet off a cliff and landed on the back of his horse when he wasn't looking. Now, come on, Marshal. Did you ever jump 800 feet off a cliff and land on a man's horse? Uh, heights, heights make me ill. That figures. We had a meeting up there. Me, my brother Frank, the Dalton boys, Sam Starr, Billy the Kid, quite a few others. And the consensus was that you wasn't doing a thing for our good names. So we had a little election. They chose me to come down here and maybe take a little of the shine off your pants. So like I said, the first 11 minutes, I'm on board with this one. It's funny, we have a great lead, and it's all going quite well. But the moment things start to go wrong for me, is when the Twilight Zone aspect comes into play. And it's no fault with Arch Johnson, he's just playing what he's been given to play. But it's actually a problem with this whole setup here. Firstly, I think in some small way it breaks one of Buck Houghton's rules for the Twilight Zone, that there's only one trick per episode. I can't recall the exact quote, but basically it was along the lines of each episode will only have one element of the unexplained or the fantastic. So let's say the main character in A Hundred Yards Over the Rim wouldn't go forward in time and then meet an alien. It would be one or the other. But here, Rand seemingly goes back in time and then meets Jesse James. But it's not just Jesse James in that time. It's a Jesse James who has died and presumably gone to heaven because he keeps saying up there and now he's came back down to his own time. So it can't really be his time, it must be some sort of illusion, some construct. That's okay, we've seen constructed realities in the Twilight Zone before, but I just feel it really lacks a kind of elegance and simplicity, and ends up coming off a bit clumsy. 
I think really speaking, it should be one thing or the other. Either Jesse James comes back and meets Rance in Rance's time, or, and this would be my preferred way of doing it, Rance simply goes back in time and meets the real Jesse James. Not Jesse James, who has died and came back down from heaven, who has been watching Rance's TV show in heaven, but simply just Jesse James, who is living his own life in his own time. So I think to understand my other criticism is that we have to look at the world of movie and television westerns at this point. Showdown with Rance McGrew was released in 1962. And if we look at what westerns came out that year, we have titles like How the West Was Won and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, two very high profile American made westerns. But what I think Rance McGrew is more poking fun at is shows like The Lone Ranger, which is a breed of television western where the heroes have immaculately pressed shirts, perfect teeth, and look like people play acting the old west rather than having any kind of authenticity or grit to them. Because when we look at things like How the West Was Won and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Although there is still a kind of Hollywood sheen to them, there is a bit of earthiness to them, a little roughness. Now I'm no expert on westerns, and I'm certainly not going to say this with complete authority, but from skimming the titles released by US studios at the time, I think it was still generally the case that American-made westerns had a certain way about them, and they would only go so far in terms of the look of them and the level of violence that they portrayed. But while the American Western was doing its thing and doing it very successfully, over in Europe, Westerns were also being made, and they had a flavour all of their own. Now the European Westerns didn't originate in the 60s, but if you look at a list of Westerns made during the 60s, the Euro Western, particularly the Italian made ones, which were dubbed Spaghetti Westerns, just exploded. And this was in no small part due to a movie that would come out two years after this Twilight Zone episode in 1964, called A Fistful of Dollars. This was the film that opened the door for countless spaghetti westerns to be made, and what differentiated them from the US counterparts was they had a level of grit and violence to them beyond what America was doing at that time. Now I'm no western scholar but my favourite film of all time is a western, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, the third part of the trilogy that was started with a fistful of dollars. In the Italian westerns, the old west was harsh, violent, dirty and uncomfortable, but it was also epic and thrilling and often scored by masters like Ennio Morricone, and if you look at a film like The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, there's not a shot of it that you couldn't put in a frame and hang on your wall because it's so beautifully made. And the Italians would take bit players from the US like Lee Van Cleef and Eli Wallach and of course Clint Eastwood and they would put them centre stage in their films and make them stars. So Showdown with Rance McGrew was made just on the cusp of a time of change for the Western because that harder edge from the Italian films began to trickle into the American films, and by the end of the 60s, America was producing films like The Wild Bunch, 
a harder, more violent brand of Western. So surely if this Twilight Zone is commenting on the difference between television tough guys and genuine Western tough guys, Rance McGrew must be in real trouble if he's up against a famous outlaw, Jesse James in the shootout. Marshal, I'm gonna count to five, then we're both gonna draw. One. This is ridiculous, it's, it's never done this way. Two. But I didn't even want to do the series. I just did it because of the residuals. Three. And the fact that they were going to let me use my own name as the character. Four. I suppose you know that I have an aging mother and I have millions of fans all over this country and, 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 and they're going to hate you for this. And a lot of them are just like my old mother. You're killing an American institution. Five. Stuntman? Stuntman? Reach, Marshal. Figured this guy could not draw a crayon. Come give me a break, will you, Jesse? Jesse, give me a break. I'm too young to die. I'll do anything you say, Jesse. I'll do anything you say. Just give me a break. You say you got nominated for an Emmy? Two. Man, you can't act any better than you can draw. Oh, Jesse, Jesse, I'll do anything you say. Just give me a break. Jesse, I'll do anything you say, Jesse. But really, you, you, you just name it. Anything? You just name it. Marshall, maybe you and me ain't too far away from a bargain. So no, Rance isn't really in any trouble at all, and here lies a big part of the problem for me. And Mark Zickery makes the same comment in The Twilight Zone Companion. This Jesse James and this Old West that Rance McGrew finds himself in isn't that different from the one in his television show. So apart from Jesse James saying how ridiculous Rance's show is, we don't really see that difference at all. When his reality shifts, the place looks exactly the same. And while Jesse James himself might be a bit of a bully boy at times, he turns out to be generally okay. So Rance McGrew's portrayal of the Old West in the Twilight Zone and the fact that it was made at a time when the Western was about to tonally shift into darker territory, it becomes instantly dated because this supposed real Jesse James is a teddy bear compared to other on-screen cowboys of the time. Put him next to someone like Lee Van Cleef and he wouldn't stand a chance. And we've actually already seen a rougher brand of cowboy in the Twilight Zone. Albert Sarmi in Execution played a violent and dangerous cowboy in Joe Caswell. The Old West we see in the episode The Grave was a dirty, broken down and dangerous place. So for the showdown with Rance McGrew to be more effective, he wouldn't necessarily have had to find himself in the good, the bad and the ugly. This is television, of course, so it can only go so far. But it could have at least matched what we've already seen in the Twilight Zone before in episodes like The Grave. So could you imagine Rance McGrew finding himself in the old west depicted in The Grave where nothing's clean? It's broken down. And then with maybe Lee Marvin or Lee Van Cleef playing Jesse James. Actors who genuinely seem dangerous. So you could have still had Rance McGrew being the buffoon he is. But had that juxtaposed against these genuine movie tough guys. So Rance is still doing his thing. But you have them playing it absolutely straight. As I said earlier, I just feel that the mechanics of this Twilight Zone intervention are all off. And by having this kind of device of Jesse coming from cowboy heaven 
and Rance going back in time, or at least into some kind of constructed reality, it loses any elegance that it could have had. All this episode needed was Rance being the prima donna on set, maybe play up his disrespect for the genuine cowboys of the Old West, until the Twilight Zone steps in and he finds himself in the genuine Old West, in a genuinely dangerous situation, facing a genuinely dangerous Jesse James. Then maybe we should see him escape by the skin of his teeth, and he finds himself back in his own time, with a new respect for the genuine cowboys, and he changes his way accordingly. But instead, we get this. Howdy, Marshal. <laughs> you said anything, and anything is the following. I'm going to stick around from picture to picture to make sure you don't hurt no more feelings. Now, in this scene, Jesse don't shoot you in the back. He don't? He's lost a lot of blood, he's weak as tea. But he can still get on his feet, knock you through that window, and make his getaway. Is that understood? He knocked me, Rance McGrew, through a window? It's a... So what we get is Jesse James has now seemingly permanently come down from cowboy heaven and is now going to be Rance's agent and start having input on how his pictures will go. Then in the end, we're told, but not shown, that actually Rance becomes a decent guy now. So we don't even get the satisfaction of seeing that change in Rance or having him realise that he has been a prima donna and disrespectful to the cowboys of the past. I think it's quite obvious by now that this episode just didn't quite work for me, but what I will say is this. I don't think it's part of the whole Twilight Zone can't do comedy thing, because like I said, that first 11 minutes is pretty funny, and even afterwards, as the story begins to fall to pieces before our eyes, it's not the comedy that's the problem. I still think Larry Blyden's gift for comedy is evident throughout it. I think the problem is where the story goes. It's a muddled Twilight Zone intervention followed by a showdown with the supposed real Jesse James, who isn't really that bad at all. I think with another pass at ironing out these flaws, this could have actually been very decent and quite ahead of its time, reflecting what would soon be evident in actual Western films, that the white-toothed cowboy with the shiny silver gun an immaculate clean press shirt, who hit every shot with pinpoint accuracy, wasn't actually how it was. So while Rod Serling's mission with this one to show that difference was quite clear, what we ended up getting unfortunately, a sadly missed opportunity in the Twilight Zone. The evolution of the so-called adult western, and the metamorphosis of one Rance McGrew, formerly phony baloney, now upright citizen, with a preoccupation with all things involving tradition, truth, and cowpoke predecessors. It's the way the cookie crumbles and the six-gun shoots in the Twilight Zone. So that was our showdown with Rance McGrew. Bit of a tricky one, that one, I thought. You know, usually even the episodes that I don't think are quite successful... There's something to dig into, some sort of subtext, you know, what's it all about? Whereas this is kind of like a straight-up comedy with a good kind of central intent, but what we ended up with wasn't quite successful. So it was really a little difficult to actually latch onto something, but hopefully you enjoyed it. 
So let's get to some listener emails in Submitted for your approval. I've had an email from a new friend of the show, Sarah, and she says, Hi Tom, I've never been before interested in the Twilight Zone. I'm not into sci-fi and I thought it would be super hokey and cheesy, but for some reason I just started the pilot on Hulu and now I can't stop. I'm a big fan of books and stories, so this has captured me. Rod Serling is brilliant. The acting in these shows is wonderful and it's a true piece of entertainment and history. Stories as they are meant to be told as well as a way to link us all together with human emotions. Side note, it might just be me, but I'm wondering about the main characters mostly being men. Women are either typecast as a temptress or wife, two-dimensional. Also, I have to laugh at the age of casting, meaning, so here is so-and-so age 35 when clearly the actor is almost 50. It's funny, yet it works. Anyway, I had to see if there were any Twilight Zone podcasts, and after sifting through the other ones with the same name, I came across the real one, yours. So glad you're undertaking this project. Love all the trivia and clips and your thoughts on things I noticed or things I didn't think about. I'm up to time enough at last. I listen as I watch the show, and I hope to catch up. And that is Sarah from the US. Now the reason I wanted to read that was firstly I think it's great when someone discovers the Twilight Zone for the first time. I love that and that she's starting to go through the episodes which is great. But also she picks up on something I think I've probably picked up on in the past. The way women are either typecast as a temptress or a wife and are two-dimensional. I think I've probably picked up on the fact that often they are just like kind of like the shrewish wife who's given the protagonist some kind of grief which is sending them off the rails or whatever. I mean, a good example of that is a stop at Willoughby where Gart Williams' wife is very much a kind of greedy, manipulative woman. And yes, like you said, the protagonists are mainly always men. I think for me, the reasons for this are probably a couple of things. First of all, because they were only 23 minutes long, often they had to kind of introduce conflict into the character's life in a kind of quick shorthand way and there wasn't really that time to flesh out you know a nuanced relationship it was just like right he's got to be unhappy at home let's make his wife this shrewish crabby kind of character so i think there is that but the second reason and probably the main reason is that i guess at this point it still was a man's world you know So while the Twilight Zone could be progressive at times, there was still a long way to go. So maybe it took, so maybe it did take a step forward with episodes like The Midnight Sun showing these very, you know, capable women dealing with this disaster. But for every one of those, there was probably a whole lot more where women weren't portrayed as positively. So I think that's the crux of it really, you know, it it was still a man's world at that time. And although the Twilight Zone would take these steps forward, there was still many more that that needed to be taken. So it's a good observation. But thank you for writing in, Sarah, and and I hope you continue to enjoy the show. Okay, good friend of the show, Andrew Schneider, wrote in and he says, Hi Tom, just heard your episode on The Hunt last night. I have to agree that this is the most Hamner-esque of Earl Hamner Jr.'s contributions to the Twilight Zone. As an animal lover, I'd add a slightly different take on this episode. 
My thought, before the angel gave his explanation of why the devil wouldn't allow Hyder to bring Rip with him, is that it was a test. Anyone who would abandon a friend and loving companion for their own gain didn't deserve to go to heaven. I was delighted to hear Sailing's response to the pastor. It was, I thought, a respectful but firm defence of freedom of conscience. Too often, at least in this country, people use the phrase freedom of religion not only in defence of their right to worship as they please, but also to force their own views on others. I like to think that Sailing's take is closer to what the authors of our Bill of Rights intended when they named freedom of religion as the first freedom protected by the First Amendment. So that's our old friend Andrew, and you know, good points there, the, that essentially maybe it was a kind of test for Hyder as to whether he was worthy of going into heaven, so good stuff. Now Andrew is a broadcaster himself, but he's just started a podcast called Hurricane Season, and I've listened to the first couple of episodes, it's really a fascinating kind of factual look at natural disasters in the area where he works and you can check out that show either by looking for hurricane season in your podcaster of choice or going to houstonpublicmedia.org slash harvey slash hurricane dash season and you can go and download it there but thanks for writing in andrew always good to hear from you now i'm just going to take a little detour before i get to my final email this week and it concerns an idea that I've had in my mind for probably a couple of years now. Obviously one day I'm going to run out of Twilight Zones and I had a plan in my mind that when I got to the end of the Twilight Zone run I wanted to do something quite special. And my plan was that I would do the last Twilight Zone episode and then I would travel to America, specifically Binghamton, and do something there. You know, I've been mulling over ideas and that kind of thing, so I hope that maybe I would speak to a couple of the listeners who I know in New York and, and speak to them and visit them and talk a little Twilight Zone, maybe even get some interviews with Twilight Zone authors, that kind of thing, who live in the New York area, and, you know, maybe try and put something together. But I kind of had this idea in my head that, you know, that the last words I say on the Twilight Zone podcast would be in Binghamton itself, you know, the mothership calling me home if you like. And that's all well and good, but that's probably still a, a couple of years away at the very least. But it was always at the back of my mind and I was always mulling over what could I actually do with that. You know, I even thought of maybe uh, taking along some sort of video camera and vlogging it like a lot of people do on YouTube with various things these days. So. You know, I was always mulling ideas over in the back of my mind. So while that was in my head, something's happened in Binghamton over the past couple of years that maybe means that I need to rethink what I'm going to do with that because it started with The Twilight Zone Comes Home last year and then it's continued with Sailing Fest in Binghamton this year. Now next year is the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone. There hasn't been an event announced, so who knows if anything will happen, but surely there must be something going to happen if, if they've kind of built it up over the past couple of years. I'm sure there will be something. 
And this has kind of caused me to have to maybe rethink that idea of doing it at the end of the Twilight Zone podcast and doing it next year on the 60th anniversary of the show in Binghamton. So obviously that would necessitate me travelling to America, saving the money to go there and stay there and, and that kind of thing. Now I doubt I would do the vlog thing because it would take me having to buy the equipment and learn how to edit and that kind of thing so I don't think there's going to be time for that but like I said on the last couple of episodes if there's something going on in Binghamton in 2019 for the 60th anniversary then I want to be there I want to be there in the audience for whatever is going on and I still want to record there I want to speak to friends of the show anyone else who is going the people I know in New York or anyone else who travels there and maybe even you know, I could catch some interviews with the guests at whatever sailing fest is going on there. So that's what's kind of in my head. So I'm hoping something will, will get announced and, and I can put those plans into place. Now, obviously, that costs money traveling from Liverpool to New York and accommodation and that kind of thing. So I mentioned just casually that anything on the Patreon over and above the cost of hosting and domain names and that kind of thing then I would try and put that aside and hopefully save up enough to to fund this trip so bear that in mind when I read this next email and this is from a friend of the show called David White and he says hi Tom I'm a long time listener to the show but this is my first time writing to you my experience with the show started by catching random reruns in the 1980s usually when I had stayed up way too late. The episode which made the strongest impression on me is what you need. The whole story was captivating, and the ending came as a complete shock to my younger self. Other than those random viewings, I hadn't seen much of Twilight Zone, including many of the classic episodes. I started listening to your podcast for what you need, but quickly became a fan and have subscribed for years. Your show has made me seek out the DVDs and watch many great episodes I had missed. Also, I love your reading of what you need and have listened to it many times, even without the additional production touches included on some of your other recordings, the story and your delivery are compelling in and of themselves. Tom, I just increased my Patreon contribution quite a bit to help fund your Binghamton trip. I couldn't find a way to make a one-time donation in Patreon, so I just bumped up the monthly amount and will drop it down next month. I really am hoping that you can make that trip, and I'm sure your other supporters feel the same way. I hope that if you are coming up short in the months before next year's Sailing Fest, that you will let us know. I would be more than happy to make another lump sum contribution to help get you there. You've given us all so much with the time, passion and reverence that you put into your podcast the least i can do is help you attend this event anyhow please don't feel the need to read any of this on the program it's just a note of thanks for your show take all the time you need to get through the series i will be with you all the way thanks again david now i know david says please don't feel the need to read any of this on the program but I won't embarrass him by saying what he contributed. Suffice to say, it, it was more than two figures and enough to put 
a genuine dent in what I will need to actually make this trip. And, you know, the thing is, I mentioned that, you know, any surplus Patreon stuff would go towards the trip, and it, it was almost in passing, it was just kind of to say that it wasn't asking anyone to contribute. So the fact that someone like David has just taken it upon themselves to do this, I was genuinely touched and really blown away when I saw uh, what he had done. And it's, it's just another thing that makes me genuinely believe that I, I really have got the best audience with this show. You know, first this year it was the Rondo Award. And, you know, for David to come forward and do this unprompted, I, I can't thank you enough, David. Like I said, it makes a genuine dent in that fund. And if I end up in Binghamton next year, then, you know, all thanks to you. I really do appreciate it. And I also think another patron called Doc Cope has increased his pledge recently to a, a sum beyond what is really sort of stated on the patron. And I, I think that's probably for the same reason. He hasn't mentioned it, but I kind of get the impression that that's what it's for. So, you know, just when you think you've seen it all, um, my audience comes through again. David... Doc Cope, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. And like I said, you've really put a dent in, in that fund. And I really can't thank you enough. Okay, so that's our show for now. But stay tuned because I've got something else I'm going to mention in a moment. But if you want to get your comments on the show in email or MP3 form, then email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com. If you want to help with the costs of the show and get extra content, then go to patreon.com slash twilightzonepodcast or make a one-time donation at the website, thetwilightzonepodcast.com on a PayPal link. And with that in mind, I want to thank new Patreon supporters, William Galindo and Luke Osteen for your patronage. Thank you so much. Now, normally at this point, I would hand you over to Rod Sailing to see what's coming up next. But actually this week... You're not going to get one Twilight Zone podcast, you're going to get two, because we have been gifted something by a good friend of the show, and I will explain more about that in this next episode that you will get in the next couple of days. But what that exactly is, well, have a listen to this, and I will see you next time. This is Mark Zickry, the author of The Twilight Zone Companion, and you're listening to The Twilight Zone Podcast with Tom Elliott. You know, it's only a short hop from the Twilight Zone to Dodge City and Gunsmoke. Saturday nights over most of these stations.